Thank you so much, Nick. Thank you. Thank you for those kind words. Now, if you know a great deal about Missouri farm boys, especially from the South, you may know that in some places there's not much there. I was raised in an area where the land was very poor. So poor that they said you had to sit on a sack of fertilizer to raise an umbrella. <laughs> and uh, you have to think about that a moment. <laughs> but actually that, that was about, about the truth. Now, I'm really thankful to be here. Uh, Talbot is taking on a very serious and important issue that has deep uh, theological issues involved in it. And uh, you may see that the topic for given to me, and I'm glad for it, is taking theology and spiritual disciplines into the workplace. Now, there's a handout. And if you didn't get it, uh, maybe you should uh, hold up your hand or something and someone might bring it to you uh, because uh, the discussion will be a little thick and it may help to have a few notes uh, to guide you. I have some texts at the top of the page and I will read a couple of those, not all of them, but the most striking one is one we've already heard and that is Colossians 3.17. Whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now that text has got a lot in it, and we could spend uh, our time just spelling that out, but the basic idea is very simple. Whatever you do in word and deed pretty well covers it, doesn't it? There's not a lot left out. And uh, so the song about having Jesus and take everything else, you see that verse is a way of saying how that works. Because how that works is not just having lovely states of mind. Lovely states of mind are fine, but it's an action verse. It's saying do everything you do in the name. Now the name is kind of like power of attorney. Uh, to act in the name of Jesus means to do it on his behalf and from his resources. And that's how you can spend your time with him. And he will be personally present to guide you. Uh, the remainder of Colossians uh, 3.17 uh, is also uh, extremely important for our understanding. Paul goes ahead to give advice to wives and children and fathers, and then in verse 22 of chapter 3, he says, Slaves, in all things obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service, and the lovely old word there is eye service, serving eyes, as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily, from your soul as from the Lord rather than for, uh, for men, as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing from the Lord you shall receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom we serve. And um, 
that transforms everything. And as we do that, I'll just look at Romans 5.17 of the remaining verses there. And this is talking about the contrast in life when sin reigns and when grace reigns. And verse 17 says, For if by the transgression of the one death reigned through the one, much more those who received the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know what you think about reigning, but it's worth thinking about because not a lot of people think they're reigning in life. Reigning means to have supreme supervision over what is going on. To reign is have, to have things at your disposal and your actions and to be able in your life to have things that are going your way. Now the trick here, of course, is this is under the abundance of grace because you can't do that on your own. And the problem for human beings is they want to reign without God. They want to reign without grace. And it's simply a no-go from the start because we're made to live under grace. Grace is God acting in your life to accomplish what you can't accomplish on your own. And I encourage you to think about that. Grace is God acting in your life. Is it unmerited favor? Yes, it's unmerited favor. But if all you know is it's unmerited favor, you don't know very much about grace. The unmerited favor takes the form of God acting in your life to accomplish what you can't accomplish on your own. Now then you're ready to reign. And of course, the forgiveness of sins will be a part of that. You'll no longer be under the dominion of the dead hand of the past because you will be forgiven and given new life that leaves you free of the burden of guilt and failure. So now with those verses in mind, and I'll just leave the rest of them that's on the page for you to think about. You probably are familiar with them already. Let's look at this topic, taking theology and spiritual disciplines into the workplace. And I'm going to divide that in good theological terminology under three headings. And the first is theology, and that's our understanding of God. And the second is anthropology, and that's our understanding of human beings. Who are we? What are we here for? And then soteriology, which is the understanding of salvation or deliverance. Now, let me say something just on that point now, and we will try to develop it better in the time we have. When you're thinking about whole life discipleship, your problem is likely to be what you take salvation to be. The greatest barrier to whole life discipleship in our world, the world of folks like you and me, is a theory of salvation that does not include it. Does that make any sense? Because if you have a theory of salvation that does not include discipleship, much less whole life discipleship, you may just decide to enjoy the ride to heaven 
and not worry about anything else. And we have a lot of people who have been preached a gospel and they've accepted that gospel and basically they have said, thank you Jesus, I'll see you in heaven later. I must get on with my life. Right. And uh, that's something to worry about because you know the only issue is not will you make it in, but will you enjoy it if you do? <laughs> See, it's, it's hard to imagine that you would if you didn't enjoy the company of Jesus now, right? I heard someone say the other day that if you don't like worship, you better not go to heaven because you're gonna be in real trouble if you don't like worship. So our relationship to God requires an understanding that goes deep into life. And so let's just begin with a few words here about the theology. We are going to take our theology into the workplace. And the only question is, which theology are we going to take? An atheist has a theology. He has an understanding of God. And he takes that understanding into the workplace and he winds up basically trying to be in the position of God. A deist, someone who says, well, there is a God, but he doesn't have anything to do with us, will take that theology into the workplace. And actually, you see many people who are practical deists because if you observe them in their lives, they do not assume that God is living interactively with them in their lives. And a lot of our Christian teaching and religion has fed into that. Now then, the most devout disciple of Jesus will also take that theology into their workplace. And they will be constantly paying attention to Jesus and what Jesus wants. They'll be learning from him how to do what they do because they are his apprentice. A disciple of Jesus is someone who is apprenticed to Jesus to learn how to live in the kingdom of God like he does. I will talk a little more about that in a moment. But that means that all of the tasks that I face in my work are tasks which I undertake with Jesus at my elbow. God is present in my life through Jesus the Son, and he is my teacher, and he is the one that I'm learning from constantly as I go through life. Now how we think about God is the most important thing in our lives. And nearly all of the troubles that human beings get into, and I use the word nearly, I actually think all of them, come from thinking wrongly about God. The nature of God, his spiritual nature. Uh, when Moses was dealing with God in Exodus 3, he wants to know who he is. He says, if I'm gonna go down in Egypt and do this thing you're telling me to do, I need to tell them who you are. And there's a phrase there that translators struggle with, 
And uh, I think the right translation is the old standard one where God says, I am that I am. Not I am who I am. Some translations put it that way, but even Popeye is who he is. You know. Every, everyone is who they am, whatever. Uh, what uh, God is doing here is saying something extremely important about God and about God only. And that is, he is the only being that is totally independent of everything else. I am that I am. My being is predicated on my being and on nothing else. There isn't anything else in the universe like that. That's a primary feature of spirit and God, as we know from John chapter four, is spirit. And that means among other things, as, as uh, Jesus is explaining to the woman at the well, uh, that means that God is not in a place. Or rather, he's in every place. And that there is no place where he is not. And so you don't have to worship in the mountain there in Samaria, as the Samaritans did, or you don't have to worship in Jerusalem. And actually, a location like that in Jerusalem wasn't particularly God's idea anyway, but he did it to help people out who needed to be able to think about him in a way that they could work with him. God's nature is love infinitely empowered. Because this being is always set on doing what is good, and that's the character of love. You love something, if you will, what is good for it. Right? You hear people say things like, they love chocolate cake, but they don't, they want to eat it. <laughs> that's not love. At least from the cake's point of view. <laughs> you might imagine someone who loved chocolate cake and just took care of it and saw to it. That's not what people mean. So love is will to good. And someone has already mentioned how many times good shows up in Genesis 1. And it's a beautiful expression of what God is like. And this infinitely powerful love now is present where we are. It is God at work where we are. God at work in nature. God at work in history and in social processes. It's really important to remember when you hear people getting so upset about what's going on with the wars or the economy and all of that. It's okay, God is there. And people say things like, well, where was God when the Twin Towers went down? God was there. God is always there. And God is there in our personal life. The realities all around us are places where God is at work. It's really important to think this if you're going to go to take him into the workplace. And the first thing you want to do if you decide to take him is recognize that he's already there. God is already there wherever there is. And it's so important to have the right idea of God. William Law says in one passage, think magnificently of God. 
and how we think about God. A.W. Tozer has these words, that our idea of God corresponds as nearly as possible to the true being of God is of immense importance to us. Compared with our actual thoughts about him, that's what matters. Our creedal statements are of little consequence. Our real idea of God may lie buried under the rubbish of conventional religious notions and may require an intelligent and vigorous search before it is finally unearthed and exposed for what it is. Only after an ordeal of painful self-probing are we likely to discover what we actually believe about God. And what you see people doing, uh, professing Christians and others, what you see people doing is a real indication of their idea of God. And it's so important for us to understand that and take an idea of God with us that enables us to think magnificently of him so that we can bring him wherever we are and our expectation will be that he will act with us. Waiting upon the Lord is a fundamental principle of human life. If we don't do it, we have to carry the burden. But they that wait upon the Lord will renew their strength and they will mount up with wings as eagle. Now, I don't know how, where you work is, where I work, I need that. And so I have to train myself to expect his action with me wherever I am, even in very discouraging times or when it seems like I'm faced with an impossibility. To wait on the Lord means, among other things, not taking things into my own hands. And that's where disciplines are going to come in, and we'll be talking about those uh, in a moment. So we need the right idea of God if we're going to take our theology into the workplace. The second division of theology that I've listed here under number three on your page is anthropology. That's a, an important division. Old-fashioned books in theology often will have a heading of anthropology. And this is a, an understanding of who we are and what we are to do, as well as what our resources are. So now, what are we? Well, we are limited will, intellect, and energy. We have just enough, not very much, just enough to relate us to the great source of all will, intellect, and energy. We are meant to function under larger powers, and that is the basic truth about the human being. The human being has a vast horizon but it cannot realize that and move into it except in subjection to God. And we've heard, uh, I think Wayne and others have talked about Genesis 1. Genesis 1, 26 tells us what human beings are. They are created in God's likeness. And that means they are created to have dominion. Now in case you don't notice the connection, the dominion and reigning go together. 
dominion and reigning are exercises of the power that comes to us under God. So God says, let us make human beings in our likeness. And you look back down the history of theology and the church and you see all kinds of discussions about what the likeness is. I think on that, as far as that verse is concerned, it is simply dominion. Let them have dominion. And in particular, let them have dominion over the created world, the world of life. And uh, if you're looking at that verse, you'll see that the first thing on the list is fish. That's very big in Missouri. <laughs> and the fish have to run and hide because of people who are trying to have dominion over them. Um, I don't think that's exactly what is had in mind here in verse 26. And you get, of course, other things listed, living things of, of all kinds. Uh, down to creeping things. So, uh, at least on this story, you have dominion over lizards and spiders as well. And uh, God made human beings to have that kind of governance for his good over his creation. Psalm 8, uh, you're, you made a step up because now we don't start with fish. Uh, and uh, we've come to the place to where domesticated animals, uh, what is man, that you take thought of him, even pay any attention to him. The son of man, you visit, that you visit him. You see, that's recognizing that what we are doing is done in companionship with God. That's how we were meant to rule. And when we broke that companionship, of course, then we have trouble because we don't have the power to carry out the calling that even still falls on people, even though they may be quite far from uh, human beings uh, who know how to rule, uh, they still have that call to rule. Verse uh, six, thou hast made him to rule over the work of your hands. Now that's, that is the calling upon human beings is to fit into creation in such a way that all of it is ruled over by human beings. And again, if you think about the history of technology and all of the other developments that you might see, including uh, the oil and uh, things that uh, Wayne mentioned the other evening, uh, we don't even know what's built into it, but God has put powers into that that we are to unlock and use to develop our lives and the life of um, others who are around us. Now, there's a problem, and that is what we are supposed to be able to do is not yet something we can do. And so I want to just call your attention to Hebrews chapter two, verse five. He did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking. And then he goes right back to quote Psalm 8. What is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you're concerned with him? You've made him a little lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor 
and has appointed him over the work of your hands. See, that's dominion, that's reigning, that's what we're called to do. And when we go to work, whatever our field of work may be, our vocation or our occupation, what are we doing from the point of view of an appropriate anthropology? We are acting under God. We are exercising our kingdom under his kingdom. Every person has a kingdom uh, or a queendom, as the case may be, and every person has that built into their personality. Your kingdom is the range of your effective will. It's what you have say over. And God has made us, all of us, to have a domain like that. And how far that extends depends on how it has developed. For example, your kingdom is extended greatly by credit cards. The range of your effective will, money. All of that is built into our kingdom. But of course, our main source of power is still our relationship to God. Human work is intended to be an extension of God's loving creativity. And we develop that through community in which there is division of labor. Human beings are made interdependent by their need to cooperate with others to fulfill the God-appointed dominion that they have been given. Now, the professions and the common good are things that come up in this heading. Uh, professions are areas of occupation that require a special degree of preparation and a special opportunity to serve with others. Professions are always communal. They're not individualistic. And they fall under the guidance and direction of others in the profession. That's just a few of the things that go into the idea of a profession. A, prof a profession is a manifestation of God's purpose for human beings to have dominion. And uh, that develops, for example, in the field of medicine or law or uh, some of the other uh, areas that are more recent uh, vintage in human history. Ministry, law, and medicine are the three great classic professions. And uh, that extends to other professions as human history develops. So um, this idea of your kingdom and my kingdom is built into our kingdom. And that's why the Lord taught us to pray, Our Father, which art in heaven. So my calling and my vocation that I carry out is carried out in community. And that community is meant to function under God. Now when that connection is broken, then we lose our way. And professions can go wrong. And human efforts at uh, military or other devices in government and social relations will go wrong, things will go bad. 
we have technology now that allows terrorism in the form that we now know it. The technology was developed by human beings falling, following the call of God to reign and to rule. But when the connection with God is broken, then we devote it to blowing others up. And we're very good at that. What happened? The creativity and dominion that God appointed to us has not developed with the character of the people who are exercising that dominion. And because they cannot depend upon God, that connection is broken, they start depending on themselves and on working with one another to accomplish things that generally are harmful and sometimes terribly so. So when you look around you in the world, you might think, where is God? Now he has left that kind of space to us because of his purposes for us in making us as free human beings with responsibility for the kinds of persons that we become. Jacob running from the results of his bad behavior winds up in a ditch, sleeping with a stone as his pillow. And in the night he dreams, and he dreams of a connection between heaven and earth. Jacob's ladder, you'll remember. Jesus himself invokes that picture in describing what was going to happen as he restores the connection. You see the angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. See, that's God's intention. And God is still here. He didn't leave. He hides himself from us because he's so big that if, we, if he didn't hide himself from us, we couldn't hide from him. And our project as fallen beings is to hide from God, to live on our own. And I've given you here those words of Jacob I find so striking from Genesis 28. Surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. And that's the condition in which human beings find themselves. Surely the Lord was in this place and I did not know it. Now, if you want to know God, he's available. And yet, this is a very tender sort of thing that may puzzle you sometimes. There's a passage in which Jesus explains why he uses parables. And he talks about how I speak in parables so that uh, unless they should hear and be converted. Now, when you look at that, you think, well, doesn't he want them to be converted? Certainly he does, but they don't want to be converted. And what they want is something that God makes the provision for by, among other things, presenting the truth in such a way that if you don't want it, you won't get it. And that's why he says, be careful how you hear. To him that hath, more shall be given. And to him that hath not, shall be taken away 
even what he has. All of that is to try to help us understand how gentle the approach of God to us in salvation is. So when we come to think about soteriology, we want to understand that it is a, an approach of God that gives us the opportunity to live in the kingdom with Jesus now, and that is the basic gospel. That is why Jesus, when he comes, his message is repent for the kingdom of the heavens is available to you now. The Lord is near. That's repeated in Philippians 4. Let your moderation be known or your gentleness be known of all men because the Lord is at hand. Practically the same language as in Matthew 4.17. The Lord is at hand. Being saved is a matter of hearing the good news that Jesus is available with his kingdom and it is now possible for anyone who wishes to come to him and trust him and learn his redemptive presence in all that we do. Faith in Christ means confidence that he is the one who is totally in charge. He is the maestro of the universe. And as you see the gospels opening up, you see him coming in gentle forms, little baby, uh, the son of the carpenter, the carpenter and so on. And it's hard to discern. You know, why didn't Jesus come in a big Huey helicopter and land in the middle of Jerusalem and blow people away? Why didn't that happen? Because that does not accomplish the purposes of God for human beings. We are meant to freely accept him. Now, we can't do that without grace. I don't want to get off into that. Uh, grace is required, but that doesn't eliminate freedom. And what we want and what we choose now is the matter that we have to pay attention to. We become disciples of Jesus by hearing the gospel of life now in the kingdom of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Being a disciple is the natural response to that message. The master of life has come to town to give life and to take us in. The natural response is to say, I want to be his disciple. I want to be his apprentice. And one of the deepest things I believe we need to ask ourselves in dealing with the topic of this conference and the concerns of Talbot in bringing this conference together in the Kern family is, are we preaching a gospel that has a natural tendency to produce disciples? I'm going to say that again because that is really the heart of the matter. Are we preaching a gospel that has a natural tendency to produce disciples? Or do we simply preach a gospel that generates consumers of religious goods and services? A gospel of mere forgiveness does not produce disciples. Now, uh, look, 
you're going to have a chance to mow me down on these things later. So, you know, if you disagree with it, I mean, Lord, Lord knows I've been wrong about lots of things. My wife assures me of that. <laughs> and she's in a position to know. So that's a stunning statement. And if you were to pursue that, it would cause you trouble. Because we are now wedded to a gospel that does not produce disciples in any regular connection. And that's how we get a culture of Christians who are not disciples. And that's where we are today. And if we're going to deal seriously with this issue of taking theology and spiritual disciplines into the workplace, we have to recognize where the problem is. And the problem is what we get by grace through the gospel does not extend to the workplace. There's no conceptual connection between being saved, as that is commonly understood, and taking our workplace for Christ. Put it another way. You can go to heaven and not do that. See? I don't know of anyone who's prepared to say that if you don't do this, you can't go to heaven. Now, there's three hours of discussion on that alone, okay. But it would be, I, I'm, I'm hoping that you will think, well, do I have to be a disciple to go to heaven when I die? What is taught about that? That's the great issue. As Jesus' disciple, I'm learning from him how to lead my life. That's point eight on your sheet. I'm learning from him how to lead my life in the kingdom of God as he would lead my life if he were I. Now you may say, I don't like that definition. Okay, but for goodness sakes, have one, right? Because if we're going to make disciples, we need to have a clear idea of what it is. And I just suggest, try that out. And if you can improve on it, praise the Lord. Now, spiritual formation is the process that happens to those who are in the status of a disciple. As a disciple, I am being transformed in all dimensions of my personality toward the goal of loving God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind, with all my strength, and my neighbor as myself. See, that's the goal of spiritual formation. Now, you don't have to be there to receive grace and forgiveness. I'm sure of that. We're not talking about perfection, but we are talking about faithful dependence on Christ in whole life. And that's what we're talking about, isn't it? That's what our whole life discipleship, that's what we need to understand, is where does that come from? Whole life discipleship comes from the recognition that Jesus is the one in charge of everything, and I can trust him and learn from him, and then in our work, our uh, the CEOs that have spoken so eloquently here uh, today and uh, last night, 
You see, they are simply learning how to learn from Jesus, how to do everything they do as he would do them if he were they. But basically, there are three things you're learning. One is how to do the things he said do. So we have all the lists of things, both in the Gospels and in the Old Testament. Um, I mean, even the Ten Commandments, I'll tell you, the Ten Commandments are really good. <laughs> if you just try to do them, you'll wind up trusting God for sure. Because you're sure gonna be in trouble with men. And God will come to your aid. Because you see, on this point, we're not trying just to do the Ten Commandments or what Jesus said. We're trying to become the kind of people who would routinely and easily do them. See, We're trying to become the kind of person who would look at, uh, for example, Jesus' teaching, let your yes be a yes and your no and your, uh, be a no, and is that ever important in business? And we'd look at that and we'd say, well, who would want to do anything else? See, that's the transformation that we're aiming at as disciples of Jesus. And then we're not only learning that, we're learning how to do the ordinary affairs of life, running our Taco Bell or our bank or whatever it is, to do it with Jesus. And the final thing I would just mention here, and these are not three separate things, they actually go together, is we're learning how to live and act in the power of God. That's absolutely crucial. Because the world being what it is, we can't do our business the way Jesus would do it unless we're acting in the power of God. That involves prayer, that involves a whole different way of embracing the tasks that are before us. Those three things. We're becoming the kind of person who does what Jesus said. The kind of person who looks at the Ten Commandments and says, well, of course. We're becoming the kind of person who is able to face the multitudes of tasks which are not in the Bible. There ain't no Taco Bells in the Bible. But I might be running one and I need to know how Jesus, I'm learning that from him. His companionship helps me make decisions and learn wisdom. And then I learn also that I'm, I can act in reliance upon the power of God acting with me. Those are not separable. I just break them open uh, for the purposes of analysis. Now point nine there on your sheet, the problems caused by the idea of full-time Christian service and the view that ordinary occupations are not full-time Christian service. This is one of the greatest problems that we have. It's a very old problem. Eusebius, who lived in the uh, early 300s, codifies this actually uh, in his ecclesiastical history. He talks about how there are two forms of life, two ways of life were given by the law of Christ to his church. It's just a raging falsehood but it becomes established. The one is above nature and beyond common human living. It admits not marriage, childbearing, property, nor the possession of wealth. 
It's astonishing how long that stuff's been around. But wholly and permanently separate from the common customary life of mankind, it devotes itself to the service of God alone in its wealth of heavenly love. And they who enter on this course appear to die to the life of mortals, to bear with them nothing earthly but their body, and in mind and spirit to have passed to heaven like some celestial beings, they gaze upon human life, performing the duty of a priesthood to Almighty God for the whole race, not with the sacrifices of bulls and bloods, nor with the libations and unguents, nor with smoke and consuming fire, but with right principles of true holiness and of soul purified in disposition, above all with the virtuous deeds and words with such they propitiate the divinity and celebrate their priestly rites for themselves and their race. Such then is the perfect form of the Christian life. Now, the other more humble, more human permits men to join in pure nuptials and to produce children, to undertake government, to give orders to soldiers fighting for right. It allows them to have minds for farming, for trade, the other more secular interest as well as for religion. And it is for them that the times of retreat and instruction and days of hearing sacred things are set apart. And a kind of secondary grade of piety. Now, I, I wish I had time to talk about where all this comes from and how institutions, once they're formed, begin to enforce their principles as superior to everything else. But I don't really have time to say anything about that. But I hope you get the picture. Now, Luther and his idea of the priesthood of believers was entirely different. And actually, I think it's not well understood today. Because when I listen to many people talk, I think they mean that Luther was saying that ordinary people could do anything the priest can do. I think that's a terrible mistake in reading him. Rather, what he was saying was, in the ordinary duties of ordinary people, they are priests. And I've given you here, his, some of his best examples are the plowboy and the milkmaid. That was about, you know, as humble an occupation as you could get. So we really need to understand and set aside this idea that there are two different categories. And that is enforced in our time by the idea that preachers and teachers are in charge of salvation. And so they are more important and uniquely placed before God. And since that is so important, uh, no, it is important, I'm not questioning that in the least, then the people who are in charge of that are the ones that have a special place before God and the other occupations do not. Well, just quickly, disciplines are for disciples. Here's a very interesting thing about human beings. They get to determine very largely the person they become. And God has put discipline in ordinary human life to allow people to achieve things 
that otherwise will simply go by them. We are able to improve our condition, both in the realm of nature alone, like weightlifting. If you do discipline with weightlifting, you will be able to lift weights you couldn't otherwise lift. You will become perhaps a champion weightlifter. Now, whether or not you do that is up to you, within broad limits at least. If you wish to be a musician, you can, but only through discipline. If you wish to speak another language, you can do that. If you discipline yourself well enough. See, that's a basic part of human equipment under God. That's a part of what we have uh, to gain dominion under grace. Grace will not impose itself, but it's available to those who will open themselves to it. I realize I'm hitting theology there. Forgive me. Maybe we can come back to it later if there are questions. Human beings are given disciplines by God. They are a part of the good news. And if we don't teach them, we are depriving people of what they can be in the kingdom of God. And that above all applies to whole life, everything that we do. Disciplines are activities in my power that allow me to do what I cannot do by direct effort. So now in the place of work and vocation, there are all sorts of stuff coming at us. There are many temptations and many trials. How will we deal with them? Well, that depends on how we have disciplined ourselves. God has given us ways of transforming ourselves in such a way that we can stand and do what we intend under God to do, uh, no matter what the forces against us are. Uh, there's not a single thing that Jesus teaches us to do that we cannot do if we will discipline ourselves under grace. And when he tells us to go make disciples and surround them in Trinitarian reality and teach them to do everything he said, see, that's what he is presupposing is that there will be a path of discipline and teaching that makes us the kind of person who does the sorts of things that Jesus said to do. And the great mistake is to think that he's teaching us rules and practices. That always fails. He does not teach us rules except to guide us into character. What he wants is not people who just don't steal because they have a rule. They don't want to steal. They don't want to. The reason they don't want to is because they understand their place under God. The same thing with all of the terrible things in sexuality and anger and so on uh, that he talks about. Now, um, just a word or two about particular practices. Uh, there are well-known practices. I give you uh, disciplines of abstinence here. Uh, solitude, silence, fasting, frugality, chastity, secrecy, sacrifice, and so on. I always put an etc. because there's no complete list of disciplines. 
And many, many things can be made disciplines if you choose uh, to do it. For example, driving on the freeway or elsewhere in Southern California is a great place to practice disciplines. Great place to practice them. Watch for opportunities to love the other people who are driving. And you certainly find them. How to do that? Well, for example, if they want to get in line in front of you, you say, praise the Lord, come right in. Right? You don't try to crowd them off the road because you say, God loves them. And I love them. And they need help probably. And if I don't behave rightly, I can cause a lot of grief for them and for me. So you can practice things that enable you to love your neighbor on the freeway or in traffic. I've known Christians that just become demons when they get back of a car wheel. And that's because that experience of power is not adjusted to their character. Uh, you know Lord Acton's statement that power corrupts. I don't think power corrupts. It makes corruption apparent. And if it's absolute power, it will make it absolutely apparent. So what you deal with is character. John Wesley, wonderful, brilliant follower of Christ, thought that if you had money, the only thing you could do to save your soul from hell was get rid of it. He says this. I don't think he possibly could have actually believed that. He, he's too, but he says that. You see, he had a particular view that if you had the money, you could not have the character to use it for the glory of God. Because many people didn't. And actually he was talking about the transformation of the people in his own movement, many of whom came out of great poverty. And because they became sensible and frugal, they gained wealth but they didn't have the character to deal with it. And so they became backslidden and cold. <coughs> Disciplines of engagement, study, worship, celebration, service, prayer, fellowship, confession. Those are ways, special ways that we engage God in the places that we have emptied by our disciplines of abstinence. You need both of those. Uh, I nearly um, uh, hurt myself badly because I knew about the disciplines of engagement, but I didn't know they were disciplines. I just thought they were engagement. I didn't know about the disciplines of abstinence. I didn't know that I had to empty my life in order to fill it with good things. I was said, told such things as, well, it's better to burn out than to rust out. And it took me a long while to figure out you didn't have to do either one. Those aren't the only options, but you have to learn how to live with practices that will enable you to be a very effective person, uh, to work hard, to go fast without being in a hurry and other kinds of things that you learn that allow you to rest in the Lord and give your very best to Him. 
Well, just a few comments here. Disciplines do not earn anything. They are not righteousness. They are wisdom. They help us to live righteously in God's power and under his direction. The good Wesleyan term is means of grace. And that's what they are. They enable us to receive grace and to empower our lives with the presence of God uh, in such a way that we can live to the glory of God. Wesley wrote a letter to a friend, I think he was 70 years old, and he says, I am always in haste, but I'm never in a hurry. Haste and hurry are different things. Haste, for example, doesn't have a tinge of guilt to it. But if you think about hurry, you realize it's always tinged with guilt. And if you are able to trust God, that drops off. And you can work and accomplish just as much without hurry. Let me just jump to 16 here. Spiritual disciplines enable us to weave the presence of God throughout the texture of our lives and carry out our work and our play in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. It enables us to do that. And we can reflect on questions like, for example, if the Christians that were involved in the Enron failure were disciples of Jesus, would there have been an Enron failure? Think about the blowout at the platform down in the Gulf of Mexico. Ask yourself if this was something that was being supervised by fully functioning disciples of Jesus, would it have happened? Well, I don't know all the details, but from what I do know, I think it wouldn't have. And you watch the disasters that make it into the news and ask yourself the question, where were the disciples? Usually there were Christians, but they didn't associate discipleship with salvation and didn't associate discipleship with their work. Now, I don't know the details on all these things. I'm just suggesting that if you want to see the world go right, you take God into all of the vocations and all of the workplaces. So just the final two points here, just read them to you. The church is for discipleship, but discipleship is for the world, the world under God. Our world will not work without disciples. And then finally, a way of thinking about salvation. Salvation is participating in the life Jesus is now living on earth. Paul says in Colossians 3, if you then be risen with Christ, seek those things that are above where Christ is seated on the right hand of God. Set your affections on things above, not on things on the earth. Okay? That's the secret. And we can do that. Thank you very much. <laughs>